Did you know that glassblowing has been an art form invented by Syrian craftsmen since the first century BC? The ancient Romans copied the technique, consisting of blowing air into molten glass with a blowpipe making it into a bubble. Find out even more about glassblowing when I interview the owners and glassblowers from Jordan Valley Glassworks on this week's episode of One Curl Podcast. I'm Sherry. Welcome to One Curl Podcast, where I talk to people who are making their hopes, wishes, and dreams come true, and where I celebrate entrepreneurs pursuing their passion. And this week is no exception. I have Jay Bavers and Glenna Haney on the show today. They are the owners and glass blowers at Jordan Valley Glassworks in East Jordan, Michigan. Jay and Glenna, welcome to One Curl at a Time. Well, thank you so much, Sherry. It's so nice to be with you. It's wonderful hearing from you again. Let's start at the very beginning. Jay, I know that your family has been in the glass business for maybe over a hundred years. So let's start there. My grandfather came over from Russia in 1911, set up shop in Brooklyn, New York. I lived above his glass shop, not in 1911, but eventually. And I started blowing glass when I was very young. That's basically all I wanted to do. I went to school at Corning after I learned what I could from him in New York, and then College for Creative Studies in Detroit, and then settled up here in northern Michigan. Your family started in Brooklyn, and yet you ended up in East Jordan, Michigan. Now, how did that happen? It was the ultimate plan of the cosmos. I told my grandfather when I was eight years old, and he never let me forget it. I told him that when I grow up, I'm moving a shop out to the country. It's got to be near a lake, near a ski mountain. When I went to school here in Michigan, in Detroit, I used to come up here in uh, northern Michigan fishing to East Jordan and the Jordan River, and I thought this was a perfect area, and I still think it is. I've raised five children here. They're all happy to be in northern Michigan. One of them is in Ann Arbor area. He likes the action there. He's a doctor. So he likes to work down there. So they all love it up here. It is a beautiful area. I absolutely agree. And that was a great way to get to Northern Michigan. Glenna, you also have a very interesting story on how you got into the glass blowing business. Jay is married to my best friend of 46 or 47 years. When my youngest went off to kindergarten, I was at loose ends. And the third time I painted the living room, my husband told me I needed to get a job. Shelly said that Jay was looking for someone to assist in the studio to do some light cleaning and things like that. I showed a knack for the glassworks and Jay decided he wanted to train me. Five years down the road, I became his business partner. That is also fascinating. And you are a born and raised East Jordan person? I am not. I'm from Hawaii. What is the process for turning silica into glass? Silica basically means quartz. Sand is basically made up of quartz with some feathers and birds stuff in it. And when you clean it up, you have all that clear little bits of uh, sand that is quartz. Quartz chemically is a lot different than glass. So to change it to glass, we add soda and lime. So that's like limestone, just like a stone you might find laying around and soda lime from soda ash, like from burnt trees. So we buy the chemicals. Actually, we have a factory that mixes the stuff together in the right proportions to our specifications. Everything we use has to have a shrinkage rate that's the same. 
So it's all given a coefficient of expansion number, and the factory will make sure it's adjusted to that amount. They'll flour it, grind it up into a flour, and give it to us in 12-pound bags. So we can just throw the bag and the batch all together into the furnace at night, several bags, and uh, make glass. We heat it up all night, about 2,500 degrees. In the morning, voila, we have glass. You know, as I was researching the history of glass and glass blowing, I just wonder how this all got started. Because from my information, it said that glass blowing started in Syria in the first century BC. And I was wondering, how would they know to throw sand into a furnace? Glass blowing started 2,000 years ago, correct, Sherry? The process for making glass started 5,000 years ago. They knew that glass was made naturally by volcanoes, and they figured out somehow to melt the sand that took a lot of heat. From 5,000 years ago to 2,000 years ago, they made glass by man artificially. However, it was not really good glass, and it was not very clean. And eventually, they learned how to make it clear and how to make it so it was consistently good. That took quite a while. Glass was very, very important to our ancestors before we learned how to make it. So they had a lot of incentive to know how to make it, just like fire. It happened naturally, but man had a lot of incentive to want to learn how to make it artificially, bend it to our use. So glass was used as a sharp cutting tool for protection, for self-adornment. And that was used 5,000 years ago and more with artificial glass a piece of flinted volcanic glass is sharper, 10 times sharper than surgical stainless steel. So you can imagine that glass was very, very important to our ancestors because their ability to hunt, protect themselves, was basically made up of making something sharp, a sharp stick, glass, a rock, and that's it. So it was very, very important to them. And they learned how to make glass, then how to make it clear. And it was very, very precious at the time. 2,000 years ago, when the Italians dominated glass blowing, started to dominate it, the glass was worth its weight in jewels. A woman would just as soon have a glass bead as an emerald because it was rare and very few people knew how to make glass. And the Italians dominated glass blowing. Would you like to know why they dominated and how they got to dominate it? I would love to know. A couple thousand years ago, the Italians were making beads and small items that were in very big demand and very expensive. When they learned how to blow glass, the Italians took to it very well, and they didn't want anybody else to know how to blow glass the way the Italians did because it was a backbone of trade and it made the country a lot of money. The government in Italy declared 2,000 years ago that all of the glass floors would live on an island called Murano, just off Venice, actually a series of islands. That's why Murano is still a glass blowing center today. So to keep the secrets there, they moved all the glass blowers there. They were treated very, very well. They didn't have to pay taxes. They could even marry into royalty, which was unheard of in the old world, where a young man working in his dad's glass shop could wind up marrying a princess. However, If a glassblower left the island of Murano by government decree without permission, him and his entire family would be put to death. So it was a two-edged sword. They were treated really well, but they had to stay on Murano. That kept the Italians a thousand years ahead of anybody in the world in glassblowing. And they developed amazing skills by doing this. That is an interesting history. 
Glenna, what are the main tools that you use when creating a piece of glass artwork? We start out with the molten glass in a furnace. So the furnace is basically a large oven that we put the glass into to create the glass. We have a glory hole that we use to reheat and shape the glass rather than cooling down the furnace. We also deal with pieces that are called jacks and they're like a blade like pair of scissors that we use to create a line that would separate the glass from the blowpipe. We have the blowpipes. We have blocks which are cherry wood that are soaked in water. They're in various sizes. We go anywhere from an inch and a half all the way up to 14 inches. We have shears, tweezers. We have presses that will add texture. We also have some aluminum molds that we use to create design work. And yesterday when I was over at your shop, you were rolling the glass that you were working with like in a bowl. It looked like a rubber bowl that had been soaked in water. That's cherry wood and it's soaked in the water. We leave it in the water so that it absorbs as much as it can. The glass doesn't actually come in contact with the wood right away. It creates a layer of steam from the wood to chill the outside and create kind of a shape or a shell that leaves the glass solid on the outside but flexible on the inside so that we can establish a bubble and increase it without having it blow out un un unevenly. That's very interesting. I'm trying to visualize all of this because, first of all, working with glass, you have these furnaces that are like 2,400 degrees Fahrenheit, 2,700 degrees Fahrenheit. The furnace runs anywhere between 23 and 24 when we're making glass. During the day, we bring that down to around 21 to 2,200 degrees. That uh, gives us a nice, clear glass to work with. All of our color is added separately. It's added outside of the furnace because if there were color in the furnace, that would be the only color we would able to be able to use for the life of the furnace, which is five years, and that gets boring. When you add the color, this is when you are blowing the glass and you add the color as you're blowing it? Right. I'll have to come back and watch that a little more because I find that fascinating. And then after you put a color into the glass, do you have to put it back into the furnace? When we go into the furnace, we're adding glass. Like a paperweight would take three gathers of glass. So we would get our first gather. We would chill that and make sure that the surface is nice and smooth because any imperfections may cause bubbles, which isn't necessarily a desirable thing. The second gather, we would do our design work where we would pick up our color, our silver or gold leaf copper, anything like that, we would then arrange that color in a design that we've are, it's already been predetermined. And then we would, again, heat that up, create a nice smooth surface on that. Then we would go in and get the last gather to give a skim coat so that when we grind and polish and finish a piece off, we're not eating into that color or removing any of that design. We're just removing a little bit of clear glass so that we can get a nice flat surface for a piece to set on and things like that. Jay, you started as a wholesale glassworks business. Yes. When did you become a retailer and what motivated you to move to the retail side? We've done wholesale forever, and that's what my grandfather did. So that's, that's what I knew. We did work for some places in Traverse City, and they continuously told us, you know, they say, you, know, you don't want to get into retail. You don't want to deal with customers it's terrible. It's terrible, terrible. And we were running out of room where we were. We needed more room and we were off the beaten path, but we bought a building right on the main road. So as soon as we, we bought the building, 
people started coming in and we started dealing with the public just kind of by accident. The people, they were just wonderful. It's just awesome dealing with people. It helps direct us artistically. It makes us feel better about what we're doing because people are coming in all the time telling us one thing or another is really nice and that's the direction we may go in. And it's uh, frankly boring when you're working with just a few people all the time and you have nobody else coming in. So we started doing retail and we love it. We love the people. The people are great. We have just amazing customers in all aspects. They're just really, really good customers and friends. When you're very shallow and you have nothing to do, but one thing you do all the time, the people that come in become your friends. So it's been uh, very rewarding. We're very happy we went into retail and we'll stay that way forever. Can people still buy wholesale from you? We just have a couple places that we'll do wholesale with that we've been doing it for a long time. We don't really have the time to do the wholesale work. Your glass artworks are absolutely beautiful. I was particularly impressed with your memorial pieces of glass art, where you take the ashes of a loved one and create a memorial piece. Would you talk about that a little bit? Because I was so impressed with that. And what a wonderful way to remember a loved one. Yeah, I'd love to tell you, Sherry. A gal at the veterinarian office here gave us some dog ashes and said, will you you make something? I said, well, I don't know how to do it. This was 30 some odd years ago. And she said, well, practice. I got, she said, I got a lot of dog ashes. But I just want a paperweight with it. So I said, I'll work on it. And we did it. And uh, when we figured out how to do it right, people just started coming in when they were watching us and word spread, word of mouth. And people just started coming to say, oh, can you do that with people and et cetera, et cetera. And it just took off like crazy. It became very, very popular. There are people that appreciate our artwork and our craft, but nobody appreciates what we do more than people that buy memorials from us. Now, I've done this for my sister and for my sister's family, so I know how they feel. It was very, very rewarding for us to do that. It's nice to be able to have something to focus on during the day, just in passing, you know, to remember, like my sister, I keep her ashes on my desk. And it's easy for me to say, hey, honey, what, what would you do here? Do you think I ought to do this or that? And it's easier. People don't think you're crazy if you're talking to an object as much as if you're just talking to yourself, you know. But it's very rewarding. Somebody said that it, it seemed a little creepy, but people have been keeping body parts of humans from time immemorial. In England, hundreds of years ago, they used to take out the heart of a loved one and keep it in a jar. So that seems creepy, but that's what they did in medieval England. You know, as you know, the Catholic Church, when they start a new church, they have to have part of their body, whether it's a toe or a finger. In all religions, and people have always been keeping body parts to help remember whether it's a skull or ashes or whatever. Glenna, you had a very touching story that you told me regarding, I believe it was your niece and her wedding day. My brother passed away 13 years ago, and when he did, he was only a year older than me. He had an undiagnosed heart defect. When he passed, he left a nine-year-old girl, my niece. When he was cremated, she wanted something to remember him by, and we made a paperweight, and it was one of the first ones that we'd ever created here. Last year, when she was getting ready to get married, she was upset because her dad wouldn't be there to walk her down the aisle, and we created a little stone, a little piece of glass with his ashes in it, that she could put in the pocket of her wedding dress so dad could go down the aisle with her. 
And when I gave it to her, she cried because it never occurred to her that we could do something like that, that he could still be there with her. That is an absolutely beautiful story. And I'm so glad you were able to create something that she could connect with and keep forever. I have a question regarding the ashes. How much, I mean, you don't take the whole person. It doesn't take all of the ashes to make. Just a teaspoon is required. Oh, a teaspoon. Okay. How can our listeners connect with you regarding your products and Jordan Valley Glassworks? Well, you can go to our website, which is jordanvalleyglassworks.com, or they can come into the studio. If they can't come in and they don't have access to the website, they could always call us and we could send them a brochure, which gives an example of all the regular products that we would do for memorials. But we do some really unusual ones. Jay can tell you about those. So a group of guys came in, middle-aged guys, and the drinking buddy who they've been drinking with on a regular basis since high school passed away, and they brought his ashes in, and they wanted us to make beer mugs for all of them with their ashes in it so they could keep drinking with them. And since then, we've done wine glasses and other glasses like that for people. That was very interesting. There's all kinds of unique things that we've done. Just about anything we make, we can make with cremation ashes. That is very interesting. And your shop, your store is a working shop slash store. So people can actually see you working with glass, blowing glass when they come in. I find that very impressive. We enjoy having people watch. It's very rewarding knowing that people are interested in what we do for a living. It's really important for us to show the work. So people, when they're buying a vase, an ornament, a paperweight, that they understand the process that goes into it. It makes them appreciate it more because it's not like you're going to Walmart and you see something, oh, that's pretty. You don't understand all the steps that went into creating it. Here, they get to see it from start to finish. So they understand. And sometimes, especially with like a memorial, if somebody wanted to, they could see the whole memorial being created. They could take pictures so that they could explain to other people how that process occurred. You also do a workshop or a class where people can come in and at least learn a little bit about glass blowing. It is fun sharing. Hundreds of people that have taken the classes have enjoyed it to no end. It's just very rewarding. They can make something with our help. We don't actually teach them to be a glass blower, of course, in, in a, a half hour, but we help them make an object that they might want to make from $80 to 150 depending on what they want to make. And they have something fun to do, of course, and something to remember forever. Before we close, Jay, do you have any words of inspiration for our listeners? We are asked by people all the time. We have so many groups in here and school children, and the children always ask, can you make money doing it? And I tell them, of course, some of the greatest artists in the world, like Van Gogh, never made any money. Being a great artist and making money are two different things. If you love what you do, you can learn how to be a business person. So, you know, if you want to be a glassblower or a ceramicist or a painter, you'll learn how to do that. But you have to learn how to be a business person. And you can learn that in college. There's no substitute for education formal education in school and reading. If you like something and it's really passionate for you, pursue it, absolutely, you know, and you'll be happy and you can make money at anything, absolutely. And Glenna, do you have any words of inspiration for our listeners? Coming from a woman in a highly male-dominated world, it's important to remember who you are. 
and what your goals and dreams are, not to let other people overwhelm you. If it makes you happy, that's the best thing in the world. I love my job. I can't imagine doing anything else. Don't let the world get you down. Embrace it. Embrace it uh, 100%. Jay and Glenna, thank you so much for being a part of One Curl at a Time. Thank you so much, Sherry. I appreciate being able to talk with you and with your listeners. We look forward to seeing you uh, again soon. Bye-bye. I owe a very big thank you to Jay Bavers and Glenna Haney, owners and glassblowers at Jordan Valley Glassworks in East Jordan, Michigan. Thank you for a great show. Of course, I want to thank you, my listeners, for tuning in and listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I did receive a comment on last week's show featuring Wendy Barnes, Chainsaw Woodcarver. Lee writes, What an interesting career for a woman. I have to say, Wendy must be pretty strong. Can you imagine? I probably couldn't even lift a chainsaw, let alone carve an art piece out of a piece of wood. I am a regular listener, and I think your podcasts are getting better and better. You sound so happy and chipper. It is relaxing to listen to, and your voice is fabulous. Thank you, Lee, for the very nice compliments, and yes, Wendy is a treasure, all here in northern Michigan. If you would like to write a comment, my email address is curlschangetheworld at gmail.com. Again, curlschangetheworld at gmail.com. You can listen to my podcast on the following apps, Anchor and Spotify. And you can follow me on Instagram, at Curls Change the World. The song for this week is Heart of Glass by the American New Wave band Blondie, written by singer Debbie Harry and guitarist Chris Stein. The song was released in January 1979 and reached number one on the charts in several countries, including the United States and United Kingdom. Listeners, you are here to give the gift of you. Always believe something wonderful is about to happen. And remember, I'm changing the world, one curl at a time. Enjoy!